My God, my God, thou art a direct God. May I not say a literal God, a God that would be understood literally and according to the plain sense of all that thou sayest. But thou art also a figurative and metaphorical God too. These are the opening words of a meditation by John Donne, a 17th century poet and priest, the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Now, as I reflect on Donne's meditation, I think that this figurative and metaphorical God loves nothing quite so much as irony. At least I can think of no other reason why I should be standing here in the chapel of a university, having spent most of my career in Lutheran higher education and, deliri- and delivering this homily. Let me explain. Like at least a few of you, I grew up in a staunch Lutheran family. In fact, my father was a minister, and thus I had to go to church every Sunday and listen to his sermons about faith. Now, I'm sure that he must have preached about other things, the freedom of the Christian perhaps, or vocation, or why Missouri Synod Lutherans don't have saints. But I think he was reading a lot of Kierkegaard at the time, and so mostly his sermons were about faith. Faith appeared was a very serious matter, second only to grace, and the catalog of great Lutheran theological obsessions. And so by the time that I was 11 or 12 or so, I I was spending a lot of time thinking about faith and even more time worrying about it. Did I have faith? Did I have enough faith? How much faith is enough faith? In those days, we did not have assessment. So where we had clear... (laughs) Where we had clear outcomes, get grace, have faith, go to heaven, there were no benchmarks, no rubrics, no way, no, no way of knowing for sure what a faith should look like, how God might grade it, or how much would be sufficient. What did seem clear were the perils of losing one's faith. They taught you about this in Sunday school and in the high school youth group. College, it appeared, would be a particularly opportune time to lose your faith. You might sleep late and not go to church and hear sermons about faith. Or you might make friends with people who are different from you and convert to their ideas. Almost certainly, you would run into a dangerous professor who would give lectures and assign reasons that would make you question your faith. Possibly, one of them would be a biologist or geologist, but the odds were greater that it would be a religion professor. (laughs) Of course, this would be less likely to occur if you went to a Lutheran college, but it couldn't be just any Lutheran college. It had to have Concordia in its name, and even this could be kind of risky. Now, as high school graduation approached, I heard more than one cautionary tale about students from good Christian homes who go to college and lose their faith. Now, if there were anyone who was likely to lose something, it was me. I was the one who could never find her shoes in the morning and was always getting to the bus stop too late to go to high school. Once I accidentally threw away my keys while cleaning my room. Only a few years ago, I lost a ham sandwich in my office. (laughs) In any case, it seemed quite possible that I'd be equally careless about my faith and manage to misplace it by the end of my freshman year. 
Now, as it happened, I did not go to a Lutheran college. Mammon, or at least financial aid, triumphed or uh, trumped theological, theological considerations. But it would have been too late anyway. For when my freshman year finally arrived, I was all too happy to pack away my faith along with my high school yearbooks and go to a university to worship at the Holy Church of English Literature. Now, looking back, I can see that my readiness to abandon faith and take my, up my place among the goats rather than the sheep had a lot to do with what I thought faith was. Faith, I thought, was my sixth grade Sunday school teacher, Mr. Valerio, telling my best friend, Paula Weldy, that her father was going to go to hell because he was Catholic. And Mr. Valerio would know, recently having escaped this fate himself by converting to my church. <laughs> and faith was what happened when you asked your eighth grade Sunday school teacher a perfectly innocent question like, well, so where do the cavemen fit into the Bible? Are they before or after Adam and Eve? I wasn't really being flippant, I really wanted to know. My God, my God, thou art a direct God. May I not say a literal God. And after all, all those Sunday school leaflets, not to mention a long tradition of Western art, depicted Adam and Eve as perfectly civilized, even though they were always ducking behind bushes and wearing fig leaves. <laughs> there didn't seem to be anything Neanderthal about them, and I couldn't quite imagine Adam carrying a club and dragging Eve around by the hair. Not, not my... Not that my questions were always so innocent or honest either. If God is so opposed to adultery, I once asked, why doesn't he get more upset about Abraham and Jacob and David, those great biblical leaders whose behavior maybe furnished a role model for some later American presidents? <laughs> on, on more than one occasion, I suspect my father had reason to appreciate why it is that Catholic priests don't marry. And faith, I thought, was memorizing Luther's small catechism. Oh, sure, Luther makes it seem like there's some room for discussion. He poses a text, an excerpt maybe from the Apostles' Creed, and then asks, what does this mean? But it's a bogus question. Before anybody can get a good discussion going, Luther jumps in with the answer and punctuates it with an emphatic, and this is most certainly true, end of discussion. And so in the Lutheran college that would preserve or perhaps embalm my faith didn't work out, I was relieved. Saved from faith, I could pursue truth. Thus the irony that I've already referred to. Here I stand, and that's, there's something traditional about that, working at a Lutheran university, speaking in chapel, and talking about faith. How could this be? What possibly could have happened? I think what happened to me, for me was a liberal arts education that allowed me the freedom to doubt, the freedom to ask questions, and to take all questions seriously. Along the way, I discovered intellectual company. St. Augustine and St. Ambrose also wondered whether one should always take the Bible literally. John Donne is a priest whose best poems are about religious doubt. I learned about a medieval mystical tradition that insists that God is beyond anything that a Sunday school teacher can know about him or her. And when my teaching career brought me to a Lutheran college, I discovered that was, there was maybe a whole lot more to Luther than I knew, and that Lutheran education prizes the freedom to question. Indeed, it insists that we need to ask questions and discuss the big questions, 
questions that may not have answers that are most certainly true, answers that one had better believe or else. Faith has a role in this education, but it's not constraining. It opens us to possibility, to a God who is beyond human imagination, a God who is to be understood at best in part, and even then through a glass darkly. Faith begins with doubt, its friends are the hope and love, which enable one to take joy in the world, even in the face of ambiguity and paradox. And although the literal God is certainly to be reckoned with, the figurative and metaphoric God is more powerful still. Faith is Job, who loses everything he has, his family, his belongings, his health. He calls to God to account, asks God to explain himself. His friends tell him, be careful, God doesn't like challenges, God doesn't like questions, especially dangerous ones. But Job keeps on asking, and finally God appears out of the whirlwind and responds to Job's question with another question, and then another, and another, and about three or four pages of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? This God is no more to be captured by a catechism than Leviathan can, Leviathan can be caught with a fish hook or contained in a theological fishnet. And faith is the sower, the farmer, who indiscriminately scatters seed. Some seed is eaten by birds, some falls into rocky ground and grows into scrawny plants that for the want of deep roots are quickly scorched by the sun. Some seeds fall among thorns, the rest falls into good soil though and yields a fine harvest. Now in my Sunday school days, I saw this parable as an invitation to smugness. Those with faith, we were told, would be like the good seed and yield a harvest for heaven. And indeed, one of those dangerous religion uh, teachers later on taught me that maybe this is an, interpola uh, an interpolation. And so in retrospect, I wonder how anybody really could have been satisfied with that interpretation. When I read, I identify with human beings. Thus read, the parable has other possibilities. To live is to be a sower. Now, the sower's, the farmer's position is essentially ambiguous. The farmer, after all, has apparently no way of knowing which seeds will fall on rocky ground among the thorns along the path. There's no assurance that any seed will reach the good soil. There's no assurance of a harvest. One supposes that the sower has some choices. He or she could plant only part of the sea and wait and see where the good seed ground lies. But what if nothing finds the good ground? Or this sower might hoard the seed, not plant it at all, take no risks, but then there'd be no harvest. Or the sower might act just as the sower in the parable does, plant the seed, uncertain of where it would fall. This is the sower, I think, the latter one, who enacts the life of faith. Despite ambiguity, despite uncertainty, the sower keeps on sowing. <laughs>